The forces that are aligned right now against Israel are formidable, and they're actually being manifest in obvious fashions, in obvious ways. We can watch it. There was a rally held in Washington, D.C. in support of Israel. The media, for the most part, described it as a, a meeting of hundreds of people. Fox News, they showed the, the pictures of this meeting, and there were thousands of people on the, wall, on the mall in Washington, D.C. Obviously, it was an effort to downplay how many people were standing with Israel during this time of horror. As a spiritual man, I see this as an effort by the enemy to downplay the support that is given to God's people during these times. I encourage you to go to this rally. I have no idea who's putting it on. God bless them, whoever is. Who? Praise God. And hopefully a number of our of Jewish people will be there to stand and bless those who are blessing them and seeking to protect them. It would be nice for change. The title of this message is the Where is Your Faith? And it's the second part, and I am going to utilize my seven years of French. It is, where is your faith, part de? <laughs> my French accent was given to me by my French teacher, who was named Miss O'Brien. I come by this accent naturally. You'll understand in a moment why the word de is used to describe this. In twenty last part of 2019 and 2020, God instructed me, strengthen the things that remain. It's not only directed towards me. Strengthen the faith that you have. Whatever remains of that faith, strengthen it. Reinforce it. But I was also instructed to do that with the congregation. And so over the last three years, I have been trying to give a well-reasoned apologetic for why I believe and how that faith is manifest in our physical reality. This message is within those parameters. It is delusion, as I brought out last week, to believe that your current situation 
is going to last. Whatever it is, if it's good, if it's bad, it's irrelevant. Whatever it is, it's going to change. Change is the primary identifying characteristic of God's physical creation. Only in eternity do things not change. In this reality, everything changes moment by moment. By the time I'm done with this message, the universe itself will have expanded millions and millions of miles. The distance between objects will have increased dramatically. You will be 30 to 40 minutes closer to death. Everything changes. Again, last week I mentioned that as a Jew, I see my position in this world as precarious. I find little security in wealth, in possessions, in status, in health, or frankly any other material circumstance. Nothing brings me a secure, warm feeling. The young, strong, and healthy of today are the old, weak, and sickly of tomorrow. There's a wonderful cartoon about an old man, he's bent over, he's got a cane. He's standing in front of the wall on the Washington, D.C. Mall that remembers the Vietnam War. And here's this bent over, old, weak, tired. You almost think of him as pointless, useless. Of what value is he today? But the shadow that he casts on that wall He's in, his, he's in his helmet. He's got an M60. Strong, virile. Same man. Just a bit older. Traditionally, wealth has been seen as security throughout history. But wealth is a canard. In 1968, and uh, 1986, excuse me, my first trip to Israel, the nation devalued its standard for money, a shekel. It used to be a lira, and now it, they made it a shekel, and then in 19... 86, they devalued it. And overnight, Israelis went to bed, they woke up in the morning, and they lost 90% of their wealth while they slept. They went to the new Israeli shekel, and you handed in 10 old shekels, and you got one new shekel. 90% of their wealth evaporated in an instant. The 
inflation rate was in excess of 30%, people would go out and spend their money as soon as they got it. Because if they waited, it, waited for the next day, the value of that money was significantly diminished. Couldn't buy as much. We're watching that happen in our nation right now. We're told what the inflation rate is, but that's not exactly truthful. They remove items from the inflationary scale that are in hyperinflation, like gas, food. They don't count these things because that inflation rate is too high. Well, actually, you need gas and you need food. I go into the store these days rarely because I can't, my heart can't deal with the sticker shock for groceries. We're told, uh, buy gold. Gold. It'll insulate you from inflation. Let me give you another piece of history. In 1933, FDR regulated the price of gold. Pay no attention to that man on my left. Thank you, brother. <laughs> he, did, he regulated the price of gold and severely restricted the use of gold as a currency. So if you had gold, now you have whatever size pile of soft yellow metal. Couldn't trade it for anything. You couldn't buy anything with gold anymore. The security of your job. Do you have a job now? Is it a good job? Yeah, that can change overnight. Your company can be bought out. And you are now euphemistically referred to as downsized. Basically, you're out of work. Anything in this world that you see as bringing you security can disappear in an instant. If your possessions are your security, you have built your house upon shifting sands. Will not stand. There's a strong wind coming. This is the fairy tale of the three little pigs. Yeshua is the only firm foundation. He is the only anchor for our souls. He is the one who never changes. He is the one who is the same today, yesterday, and forever. The problem is man's understanding of God, his understanding of Yeshua. It's constantly subject to change. That's what got us in trouble in the garden in the first place. Satan comes to us, and the temptation is, eat this and be like God. Why be a servant? Why be under God's thumb? If you acquire knowledge, you can be in charge. You can be like God. He gave the same temptation to Yeshua. God's plan is for you to suffer and die, and then you will receive 
the worship of all these kingdoms. Well, these kingdoms are mine. Let me give them to you, and you won't have to suffer and die. All you have to do is worship me. Adam fell. Yeshua did not. He continued to stand. It is written that you shall worship the Lord God only. Depart from me. And the enemy departed for a more opportune time. Yeshua's example to us is, I do nothing on my own initiative. He did not seek his own will, but the will of his Father. The King of kings and Lord of lords, when queried, declared that his kingdom wasn't even of this world. His kingdom was in the world to come, in another place. The disciples walked in a similar path after his death and resurrection. They were in the world, but they weren't of it. Yeshua had no place to lay his head. He was a homeless man who wandered about, an itinerant preacher. The one he said was the greatest, born of, of woman, was John the Baptist. He would be considered today a complete lunatic. He's dressed in camel hair robes. His, be his beard is matted with honey. He's got a, a locust leg sticking out from between his teeth, and he runs, wanders around going, repent. Police would arrest him. People would dismiss him as a lunatic. But in the eyes of our Lord, he was the greatest born of woman. Isaiah 53 says there was nothing about his appearance, speaking of Yeshua, that would draw us to him. He wasn't dressed in regal robes. Now to, to be a preacher, to be a prophet of God's word, is a uniform. $1,500 suits, $500 shoes, manicures. The disciples were not men who gathered great wealth to themselves. Treasures that they sought were not here. They were in another place. After the death of the last apostle, the church began to focus on accumulating the wealth of this world. By the Middle Ages, the wealth of the church was unimaginable. Couldn't count it. It was beyond the ability to measure. Still is. In the 1200s, there was an incident that, quite famous, there's a number of iterations to this story, but essentially, Thomas Aquinas wished to have an audience with the Pope, Pope Innocent II. And when Thomas enters the room, the Pope is sitting at a table. There's a pile of gold there, and he's counting, counting the gold. 
And he looks up and he looks at Thomas and says, No longer does the church have to say, Silver and gold have I none. And Thomas gives his retort. Yes, but neither can we say, Take up thy bed and walk. The faith of God's people was turned totally upside down. Rather than seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and relying on God to provide for our needs, believers began to seek the wealth here so that we could provide for our own needs because they can't always count on God. I don't know about you, but there's a lot of times I pray for something. God doesn't give me that thing. Well, I can't have that. So I accumulate wealth and I buy what I want. Just do an end round, end run around God. There was a move to return in the 16th and 17th centuries to return a focus by God's people on living, according to the Jewish word, tam. It's translated a number of different ways, perfect, simple, plain. They're all the same, tam in Hebrew. Noach was described as tam, a perfect man. Yaakov was described as tam, a simple man living in tents. The urim, the tumim, the lights and perfections of God, the two jewels behind the breastplate. Tumim, perfections, plural. It became quite fashionable to describe or to compliment somebody by saying, you look plain. Today that would be an insult, wouldn't it? Yeah. But still amongst the Amish and the Mennonites, it's the greatest compliment they can give you on your appearance. You look rather plain today. However, by the 19th, 20th, and 21st centuries, we were once again seduced, and I use that word purposely, seduced by the riches of the world. It's, there's something very seductive about it. And these fluctuations of faith are identified by the desires of our hearts, and those desires are easily identifiable. You can easily determine these matters. It's simple. What is the very first thing that you think about in the morning when you awake? If your first thought is about your personal circumstances or about the condition of the world, then you are focused on yourself and the things of the world. If your first words in the morning are, morning, Abba, You're focused on God. You're focused on His kingdom. You're trying to intensify your relationship with the one who first brought, breathed life into you. Where does your mind go when you come forth from sleep? We're called to be disciples of Yeshua. To be a disciple requires discipline. 
If you're undisciplined, you can't be a disciple. That's why the word sounds so familiar. Is your situation dire? It's perfectly natural to be concerned, to be anxious, even to be worried. But the man or woman of faith is not supposed to seek to be perfectly natural, but perfectly spiritual. There are times when I wake and the things of the world weigh on me, and they weigh heavy. My health, which is deteriorating, the health of my wife, which is deteriorating, my son, my grandson, the needs of this congregation, the bizarre time. I almost don't know anybody who isn't in some kind of crisis at this point. The state of our union of our country that we live in. Tremendous concern for me. The forces that are aligning themselves against Israel worldwide to wait. It's easy for those concerns to saturate my heart, my mind, and my soul. For my brain to go to those things to try to figure out how to fix them in my own life, blah, blah, blah. When that happens, the discipline aspect of being a disciple kicks in, and I repent. And I turn my face to God, and I allow the pure, clean water of the Word to leach fear and anxiety from my mind. And then I find peace. And it's within the peace and the rest that illuminates the tumult, tumult in my soul. And I can hear that small, still voice. And God tells me how I should pray, what I should pray for, and what I should do. Because without his word, without his discernment, you're not going to figure out in your mind what to do during these times. I'm sorry, this world has become a delusion. Nothing is as it seems. We've seen this happen a million times. We watch a crisis crop up over here, but that's not real, really where the focus is. We hear this illustration all the time. It's like a magic show. We're watching the left hand. Meanwhile, the, the right hand is doing something under the table. God sees under the table, too. And it's God who will give us a, a true wisdom about the forces that are engaged right now in this battle and lead us in the path of righteousness, in the path of truth. He has an overview of the battlefield, if you will, and he sees the movements. He'll sometimes tell us, move to your right. Do I know why? No. Because I don't have that perspective. But he does, and I trust him. And he says, move to the right. And my first response is, yes, sir, as opposed to why. 
Because if why is your first response, maybe too late. There's a lot of things you can learn about following God in a place, in a field where bullets and mortars are flying. I believe the scriptures, so I believe that God knows what I need before I ask. And that he makes me aware of the real threats and prepares me to face them. I'm not interested in my condition here to be my primary focus. I seek to build up my treasures in heaven where neither rust nor the changing of governments can corrupt or pilfer that wealth. Because that wealth cannot be pilfered by a, a government. It, that wealth is not of this world. In the latter part of the 19th century, the desire for earthly wealth was given a divine sanction, an official okie-dokie, and it birthed the prosperity gospel. This movement has gathered strength throughout the 20th century and continues to make strides in the 21st century all over the world. The proponents of this gospel are wealthy be almost beyond measure. You know, it reminds me of an old Jewish joke. <laughs> a guy gets hit by a bus and paramedics come and they're going to take him to the hospital and put him on the gurney. And they look at the man and they go, are you comfortable? And the man goes, yeah, I, I make a good living. Only in Judaism could that joke be funny. Prosperity gospel is intoxicating to those who are focused on life here. <coughs> Many who are economically poor or those who are afflicted with poor health or some kind of political situation that causes them stress, flock to such teachings. You can control your circumstances. You are in charge. It's called by many names. Name it and claim it. Positive confession, word of faith, health and wealth, and a slurry of other catchy monikers that mostly rhyme. That way you can remember them. I like the way Craig refers to it. Blab it and grab it. There's a touch of sarcasm in that, I, I suspect. The similarity between these teachings and motivational speakers is simply striking. And most of the techniques are precisely the same. A few chosen verses surgically removed from their context and strung together in a precise order make it all sound so feasible. Yet under closer observation and inspection, 
is shown to be sophistry. It's illogic, not logic. There's a few premises that this is based on. First is the Abrahamic covenant. If you bless Israel, you will be blessed, and that is translated into a means of economic and material entitlement, wealth. In Europe, people made these little figurines of Jewish people, mostly chassidim, and they would place them on the mantel, bookshelves, by the bedside. Every once in a while they'd walk by it and tap it on the head and bless it. And that brought them money. You think this was from the Middle Ages? This was going on up until the 1960s. We had electricity and everything. It's still going on in the 1960s, and they're still in the open-air fairs. There's still little figurines you can purchase. There are stories about, in, in Russia, of the wealthy coming by the ghettos of the Jews and rubbing the belly of a Jew or rubbing the head of a Jew to get good luck. That would be inappropriate in our time, wouldn't it? <laughs> Just, yeah. The second premise, Yeshua's atonement extends to the sin of material poverty. It's a sin. If you're poor, you're in sin. Deuteronomy 8.18, remember the Lord, for he gives you the power to produce wealth. So if you don't have wealth and you're poor, you must have forgotten God and you are in sin. It's bizarre. Third premise. Christians give in order to get. You give something to get compensation for what you give. Basically a quid pro quo transaction with God. Number four is faith is a self-generated spiritual force that leads to prosperity in this world. The more faith you have, the more wealth you will receive. Speak your wealth into being. That's how God created the earth, isn't it? Yehior. Let there be light. Vayihior. And there was light. We can do the same thing. Speak your wills into, into, into being, into existence. And the last one, I don't want to deal with all of these because it becomes tedious. The fifth one is prayer is a tool to compel God to grant your desires. The prosperity gospel is fundamentally flawed. 
And it's irrelevant to me how many people are believing it or in the force and the power of it spreading. It's still flawed. For it reverses the relationship between God and man. We are no longer the servants of God. God has now bound himself to be my servant. If I do things in the proper way, I can force God to answer my prayers the way I want them. Answered. Force him to respond to me in a certain way. But frankly, in this arrangement, God is little more than my genie. I rubbed the Bible three times, and he appears to grant my wishes. Regarding money, the equation is simple. You give a tenth of your increase to your church, and God will give you back ten times what you have given. Basically, an investment. You give a hundred dollars, you get back a thousand. Cool. That's a nice return on your money these days when you're getting point zero four at the bank. That is not the gospel of Yeshua. I'm sorry. Yeshua said, my kingdom is not of this world. Whose faith is inscribed on this? Render unto Caesar what's Caesar's. Render unto God what's God's. Yeshua did promise us something in this world. Trouble. Because the world is an enemy of God. And it is an enemy of anyone who follows God. Now, I, wanna, I just want to step back a second here so that I'm not misunderstood. Is it bad to pray for healing if you are sick or the resources to feed and clothe your family if you are poor? Of course not. By so doing, you are pronouncing that you believe that God is the source of all these needs. At issue is the way these teachings are presented, and basically who's sovereign, who's in charge. We are told by proponents of these uh, strange theologies that our faith in God will compel him to heal us and make us wealthy, that God always desires to heal you and always wants you to live. I don't read that. In fact, I don't know how that's sustainable. In fact, if we look at Sukkot and the high priest during the, the first century, the high priest would pray, Lord, don't listen to the prayers of the traveler. Why? Because not every traveler prays for good weather. Nobody, no traveler prays for blizzards and thunderstorms. And since everybody, there's somebody traveling every single day, if he heard the prayers of the traveler, the drought that would come would be as epic as the flood that came before it. Same thing here. I'm walking with God over 50 years now, and I have never prayed for someone to die. 
I've been tempted. But I've never prayed for somebody to die. And I have prayed for thousands of people. But I'm just going to make it simple. Let's say I prayed for a thousand people and God answered every one of those prayers and every one of them was healed and every one of them lived instead of dying. That would mean that there would be 1,000 more people on this planet than there is now. Extrapolate that out. There's over a billion believers on this planet and every one of them has prayed for people to be healed, to live and not die. If you extrapolate out even those conservative numbers, that would be a thousand times the billion people. That would make the population of this planet in the trillions, not the billions. There would literally be no place to lay your head. It's an absurd equation. You can't, you can't sustain that. Here's what the scriptures say about it. There's an appointed time to be born. There's an appointed time, a moed, to die. And unless you get a, some kind of Hezekiah prayer and your life is extended by 15 years for some special need, that's the day you're going to die. Period. It is simply not accurate. Paul discusses this matter in Romans chapter 6, verse 7. It is something that it, the scriptures certainly never say that. Even when in John 3, 16, where God is saying, I don't want anybody to perish. But he doesn't say have life here, but have everlasting life, eternal life. The focus of God's words is always on the world to come on the other side of this veil. Paul tells us in Romans 6 and 7, the wages of sin is death. All men sin, so all men die. God is not mocked. You reap what you sow. There are many things I did in my youth as God healed me of them. Some. Has God forgiven me then? Yeah. Is there a residual effect of that behavior? Indeed. And it's a constant reminder. Without God, you have no hope, here or there. It's a reminder. Keeps me humble. That's exactly... What happened to Paul? Paul had faith. Good Lord, people touched his handkerchief. And they found healing. But he prayed for himself three times. He wasn't healed. Now, the, there's some extraordinary and excruciating mitigations on what that, well, this was a messenger from Satan and it really wasn't a physical ailment. Of course it was. What happened to him on the Damascus Road? He went blind. Did God heal that, his eyesight? 
Yes. Fully? No. There was a vestige of that blindness. See, I write to you in my own hand and see what big letters I use. Paul's eyesight was inhibited. He wanted it fixed. Lord, heal me. No. Why? Eh, you'll get all proud again and start being stupid. It's a paraphrase. It doesn't actually say that in the scripture. Paul understood it. He submitted his will to God's will. He didn't lose faith in God. He didn't stop preaching God just because God didn't give him what he wanted. He accepted. It was more important for him to remain humble. Otherwise, his eternal life was in danger. Paul understood the nature of his sin. That's why he says, I work out my own salvation with fear and trembling. He knew what he did and how egregious it was. That's why he focuses so much on God's grace, because he knows without the grace of God, he had no chance at eternal life. Paul's faith was never shaken by the fact that God did not take whatever this messenger of Satan this thorn in his side, whatever it was, he endured and continued walking in the path of God. He followed the faith of Yeshua, not my will, but your will be done. That was the faith of all the apostles. Each lived in poverty, affliction, tribulation. Each one of them surrendered their lives to their faith in Yeshua. Did they pray for deliverance? Of course they did. Some of them were delivered. All of them eventually went under to their faith in Yeshua. And it wasn't a pleasant death. Were the apostles men without enough faith to believe that God would deliver them or heal them? Or did their faith make them strong in the midst of their tribulation to continue to proclaim the good news of Yeshua even when faced with death? We have to get this attitude. The attitude of the church in this country is bizarre. What's happening all over the world is believers are giving up their lives for their faith in the Lord. And here we're being taught, God will deliver you. God will heal you. God will prosper you. The idea that God will give you the desires of your heart comes with this caveat. He will change the desires of your heart they will not remain the same. He will accept you as you are. He will not leave you as you are. Look back over your life. Do the things you want now, are they the same as when you first came to Yeshua? 
Of course not. You've matured. The first question, the only question, are you seeking to do God's will or are you seeking God to do your will? It's the essential question for the believer. James, you have not because you ask not. You ask and you don't, you don't receive because you ask with wrong mo motives. You want to spend it on yourself or you want to do harm to somebody else or whatever the poor motive is. You don't get it because God's not going to give you something that's going to hurt you or something else, somebody else. A gospel that proclaims he will is unsustainable. Clearly not everyone who is healed when they are prayed for. Clearly. Not everyone who is dying when they are prayed for lives. Not all believers are rich or comfortable. Revelation speaks of the costs in this world of following Yeshua. It also speaks of our gains, which are not very often seen in this world, but in the world to come. It's the whole crux of the Sermon on the Mount. Stop looking here. Focus your eyes past here. And those who preach that if you're not healed, it is because you don't have enough faith do err, not knowing the scriptures. They are at least in the same condition as the people they condemn. Health and wealth preachers get sick. Health and wealth preachers die. None of those preachers from the 1800s is still living. Sorry, they're all dead. Many of the preachers from the 1980s when Health and wealth was such a powerful movement. Yeah, in the 90s, they got cancer. They had heart attacks, liver failures. Well, if you had enough faith, foolishness of the first order. It is easy to, for me to see how a belief that God will always deliver you or heal you, or prosper you, or save you from tribulation, or do things that you want him to do, will lead to the great falling away that Paul talked about, the great apostasia, where people who have faith fall away from that faith because they pray, they don't receive, and determine God to be a liar and follow somebody else who will give them what they want. When I first got down here, I remember I, I was listening on YouTube and, or one of these sites, and there's the man giving a message. And he was preaching, the rapture is our great hope. And I began to pray for this man. The rapture is not my great hope. Yeshua is my great hope. A pre-tribulation rapture is not my great hope. I pray for it. 
because I really don't want to go through what the scriptures tell me we're going to be going through. So I pray for it. And if it doesn't happen pre, I'll begin to pray for mid. And if it doesn't happen at mid, I'll pray for post. His faith is in what he thinks God will do, not in who God is. This is so essential to our walk with God. If he's not raptured before the day of trouble, will that faith stand? Will he be able to get through it? I prayed that he would. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had a more profound, more mature faith. My God is able to save me. My God is willing to save me, but even if he doesn't. The last statement is what gave their, made their faith impervious to anything this, this world, any weapon formed by this world. I don't care what you do. I'm not going to listen to you. I'm going to walk in the path of my God. Period. The beast is going to make war against the saints, and the scriptures say, and he will prevail. There is a great multitude of martyrs who are killed for their faith in Yeshua. There is a great multitude of martyrs today who are being killed for their faith in Yeshua. Look around. Get some information from around the world. Men are being beheaded because they believe in Yeshua. The faith that will sustain you in the days of trouble is, no matter what happens, I am the Lord's. Do you have a faith to believe that there is life and life more abundantly in the presence of the Lord just beyond the veil of this physical life? That is a sustainable kind of faith. Look at Stefan. He's standing before a crowd of angry men, each with a stone, and he's proclaiming the truth of God. Knowing the consequences, it's pretty obvious what's going to happen. Does he falter? Even a moment? No. He continues to preach. And then God shows him grace. While he's preaching, he gazes up and the heavens roll back like a scroll. And he sees Yeshua standing on the right hand of the throne of glory. Stephen's mind is taken from this life and put on the one who's standing at the right hand of the throne of glory. You know, we sing a song here, Road to Zion. Joy is not where you've been. Stephen was shown the joy, the joy of the one who's waiting at the end. He saw the one waiting for him. And this life was forgotten. Yeshua revealed what prayer is and what it is not. Our prayers don't inform God of what's going on down here. Sometimes you're at a prayer meeting and it sounds like the nightly news report. 
Now, in the Middle East, Lord, and we go through this litany of conditions, we're telling God what's going on. God knew before it happened what was going to happen. That's not the point of prayer. God knows what I need before I ask. So when I pray, the first thing I do is shut up. There's not a word spoken when I pray. And that last, it's like the Amidah we do after service. My day starts out in a silent devotion so that God can teach me what I have need of. I don't always know. You taught us how to pray. Our Father in heaven, holy is your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day, even as the manna in the, in the wilderness. Give us this day our daily bread. <coughs> and forgive our trespasses, even as we forgive the trespasses of those who sin against us. And don't lead us into temptation. Don't allow us to be tempted. Deliver us from evil. Because yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory. Lord's Prayer tells us to ask for God's will, not ours. I often don't know how to pray. Situations are so complex, they're so confusing, they're so... Routed. I don't even know what's right. But there's always a prayer that'll cover it all. Lord, your will be done. You intervene here and cause this situation to come out the way you want it to. Amen. When I was a young believer, I told God how to solve the problems of the world. As an old man, I'm trying to figure out how he's going to do it. I pray often for God to work on my behalf and on behalf of those I love. I believe God is sovereign. I have seen his power in action. I have experienced supernatural healing. I have seen that healing accomplished in others. You know, with most of these services, it's a, it's a theology Lesson. Somebody trying to convince me that God is able to do this. You don't have to. I really believe is God. Get the healing. Get to the healing part. Heal my wife. Heal me. Heal those who are coming up to you. Stop trying to convince them that it's possible. What's the greatest way to convince me? that you have the gift of healing. Lay hands on me and heal me. Ah, how much more obvious can we get? Lay hands on the one you love and who has died and call them to rise up. Can God do that? Of course. Does he do it very often? Sorry. No. 
That would almost be a curse, wouldn't it? Man dies here, he goes to heaven. And now he's got to leave heaven and come back here? To listen to more political speeches? That doesn't sound like a blessing to me. It sounds like a curse. The dead are where we want to be. And experiencing that grace. Of course, I believe he's able. Of course, I believe he's willing. He's willing, but even if he doesn't. And I'll close with this. Many have asked me why, if I believe this way, why do you, if you're not sure God's going to answer your prayers, why do you pray? What's the point of the prayer? Well, the first and most obvious reason is God commanded me to pray. So I do, because I want to follow his commandments. I want trying to be a good soldier so that my Lord might use me more. So God said, pray. I pray. I have come over 50 years to trust Yeshua more than I trust myself. And if I pray, and that prayer is not answered in the way I want it answered, I now assume that my Savior has something better for me in mind. I argue with him less now. See, I love God. He's my beloved. And I am his. My love for him is not based solely on those things that, that he can do for me, but on who he is. And he has shown me he is magnificent. If you love your spouse solely because of what they can do for you, that is a shallow love, and it will not stand. It will evaporate in the hot sands of the day. Love God because he's God. Love his son. You sure? Because he's your husband. That faith will last for eternity. That love will carry you through whatever this world is capable of throwing against you. I hope I made some sense today. Father, in Yeshua's name, transfigure our faith from things that we see here to the glory and light of heaven. Even as Stefan opened our eyes that we might behold you, Lord, in the heavens, shining like the sun of its brightness. And that the desires of our heart would be to inhabit that place you have prepared for us. In Yeshua's name, amen.